Good morning and welcome to Her Turn, a program of news and information by and about women. I'm Kathy Lynn. And I'm Sam Burble. On today's program, President Donald Trump rolls back workplace protections for women while cutting funding for the UN's family planning programs. Advertisers are withdrawing their support for Bill O'Reilly and Fox News after further allegations of sexual harassment, but President Trump isn't withdrawing his. Google is systematically underpaying women. Companies in British Columbia can no longer require employees to wear high heels. And lesbian mystery novelist Ellen Hart wins the 2017 Mystery Writers of America's Grandmaster Award. So stay tuned for all this and more on the Sunday, April 9th, 2017 edition of Her Turn News. Democrats and others had a lot of reasons to block Neil Gorsuch, Donald Trump's nomination to the Supreme Court. Advocates for women's rights especially viewed the nomination as a threat due to his voting record as a judge on the Tenth Circuit Court. On Friday, the Senate confirmed Neil Gorsuch to serve as an associate justice on the United States Supreme Court by a vote of 54 to 45. He will be sworn in on Monday. The day before the confirmation vote, 43 Senate Democrats and two Senate Independents made history filibustering Gorsuch, refusing to give him the long-standing 60 votes required to close the debate on a Supreme Court nominee. The goal of those senators was to express to the Republicans, who hold a 52-seat majority in the Senate, that Gorsuch was a concerning candidate to serve on the court and put pressure on the president to select a new mainstream nominee. Instead, all 52 Senate Republicans, led by Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, voted to abandon 200 years of Senate tradition and employ the, quote, nuclear option by changing the rules requiring 60 votes and forcing Gorsuch through with only 55 votes. The 60-vote threshold was put in place to ensure bipartisan cooperation when it comes to confirming a lifetime appointment to the highest court in the land. Observers of the Senate and court now feel that without a 60-vote threshold, the court will become even more polarized and politicized. Gorsuch describes himself as an originalist, meaning that he places overwhelming importance on the original meaning of the Constitution as it was understood at the time it was written. There is a very select group of judges who identify themselves as originalists, and former Supreme Court Justice Scalia was one of them. Advocates against Gorsuch say that he will be bad for people and friendly to big business. At different stages of the Hobby Lobby case, Gorsuch, who ruled on the case at the Tenth Circuit, and Scalia both sided with the corporation. Senator Maisie Hirono from Hawaii said that Gorsuch is cloned from other Republican-appointed judges in the past, judges that ruled against pay discrimination and created a strict time deadline for sex-discriminant claims. President Trump last week revoked an Obama executive order that put in place workplace protections for women. The 2014 Fair Pay and Safe Workplaces order was designed to ensure companies with federal contracts complied with labor and civil rights laws, including two rules that helped protect female employees. A wage transparency requirement forced companies to provide each employee with a, quote, wage statement, making clear the rate of pay, the number of hours worked, the total amount of pay, and any specific additions or deductions. The order also included a ban on forced arbitration clauses for sexual harassment, which critics call, quote, cover-up clauses. This stopped companies with government contracts from using the forced arbitration clause to keep sex discrimination claims out of the courts and off the public record. In an announcement last Monday, the Trump administration said that it was cutting funds from the United Nations Family Planning Assistant, or UNFPA. 
This particular move has upset advocates globally since this funding decision will specifically hurt some of the world's most disadvantaged women and girls. Advocates for the UNFPA say that the move is unsurprising and yet still devastating. Last year, the U.S. paid $69 million to the UNFPA and was the fourth biggest donor. Republican presidents have routinely stopped funding for the UNFPA, while Democratic presidents have provided the funds. At issue currently for Republicans is whether the UNFPA supports some of the actions taken by China in the past as part of its one-child-per-family policy, that includes forced abortions and sterilizations. Upon taking office in January, President Donald Trump moved to quickly reinstate the so-called Mexico City policy, also known as the global gag rule, which restricts funds from organizations that provide information about abortion or abortion services. The policy forces health providers to decide to accept the ruling and no longer provide abortion-related counseling services or reject it and lose U.S. funding that many rely on. The U.S. Agency for International Development, or USAID, is currently the largest bilateral donor of funding for family planning services. Studies reveal that when the global gag rule is implemented, the number of clinics and family services in a given country drops, and sometimes that spurs a rise in abortion rates. The Guttmacher Institute, which studies reproductive health issues, says the U.S. spent $607 million last year on family planning assistance in other countries, The funds allocated to UNFPA for the fiscal year in 2017 are to be reverted to the USAID to support family planning, maternal and reproductive health operations in developing countries. The decision marks for the first time the Trump administration's promised cuts to the UN. At least 52 advertisers have pulled their support from Fox News host Bill O'Reilly, following revelations that Fox News paid out $13 million to settle lawsuits by five women who accused O'Reilly of sexual harassment and inappropriate sexual behavior. They accused O'Reilly of making unwanted sexual comments, kissing or touching them without their consent, and retaliating against them professionally when they rejected his advances. O'Reilly continues to have support, however, from President Donald Trump, according to a New York Times interview on Wednesday. Trump's support for O'Reilly came just days after he issued a presidential statement proclaiming April to be National Sexual Assault Awareness Month. Meanwhile, the National Organization for Women is calling for O'Reilly to be fired and demanding an independent investigation into the, quote, culture of sexual harassment, end quote, at Fox News. On Monday, television commentator Dr. Wendy Walsh came forward to accuse Fox News star Bill O'Reilly of sexually harassing her and then retaliating against her professionally when she rejected him. O'Reilly has denied all the claims against him, and on Sunday, the Wall Street Journal reported Fox News recently renewed O'Reilly's contract. Walsh's attorney, Lisa Bloom, spoke with Amy Goodman and Nermeen Sheikh on Thursday's Democracy Now!, Start off by responding to what Donald Trump told The New York Times as he sat in the Oval Office as president of the United States. He said about Bill O'Reilly, I don't think Bill did anything wrong. I think he's a person I know well. He's a good person. I don't think Bill did anything wrong. I think you've emphasized the important part of that statement. I don't think he did anything wrong. Donald Trump did not say, I don't think he did it. He does not think that sexual harassment is wrong. 
I think that's a true statement coming from Donald Trump, a man who has bragged about sexual assault, who has been accused by over a dozen women publicly of sexual misconduct. I represented four women during the campaign who made those claims. And listen, Donald Trump is choosing to stick with his crony buddy, Bill O'Reilly, rather than half the population of America, women who are really crying out for justice in sexual harassment cases. Elisa Bloom, can you tell us about your client, Dr. Wendy Walsh? She was recruited to be a regular guest on his show. After about three weeks of really an on-air audition for the job, she got an email from Mr. O'Reilly's executive assistant inviting her to dinner with him. She was very excited because she thought, here's the perfect chance to talk about getting that on-air paid position. They had dinner at a restaurant at the Bel Air Hotel here in Los Angeles. She says that during the dinner, he said, you're fantastic. He also told her she was very beautiful and we'd love to have you be a paid contributor. She said, great. She thought the dinner was going very well. After the dinner, he invited her back to his room, she says. She rebuffed him. He then immediately became very cold and angry and he said, you can forget about all the career advice I gave you. You're on your own now. She was on a few times after that from Los Angeles. He was from New York, but she was being weaned off the show and ultimately she was taken off the show entirely. Needless to say, she never got the job. She did not sue. This was back in 2013. Instead, she continued to persist and to try to get the job. And she does what a lot of working women do, which is she thought, I'll behave professionally. I'll be non-threatening. I'll be friendly. This will blow over and he'll come back around to giving me the job. So she sent him some friendly emails now and then, always very professional, thanking him for helping her getting her book out there and saying she really wanted to get that segment back up again. But it never happened. And I also want to tell you that Fox News has said Nobody's ever called our hotline about the sexual harassment complaints against Bill O'Reilly. So yesterday, Wendy Walsh and I called the hotline. She called in her complaint. We made a video of it. It's posted on my Twitter, at Lisa Bloom. This is not my first case of sexual harassment against Fox News. They have raised this in previous cases. I don't know of anyone who really was aware of this hotline. Listen, the bottom line is no employee is required to call a hotline. You don't even know who's going to be on the other end of it, right? The law does not require it. But since they made such an issue out of it, we decided to do it. Well, let us ask you about the people that you represent, not in the case of Bill O'Reilly, but now that Donald Trump has jumped into the story by saying that his friend Bill O'Reilly did nothing wrong. You represented women against Donald Trump, who alleged he sexually harassed yes. them. Like, if you could tell us about Jill Harth, and then a much yes. less well-known case, a 13-year-old who accuses Donald Trump of assault. Tell us those stories. Jill Harth, I was very proud to represent. She was the first woman to come out in early 2016 with her story of alleged sexual harassment against Donald Trump. She had filed a lawsuit against him in the 1990s, so it was out there for anybody to see. Although he says Bill O'Reilly should not have settled the cases, in fact, Donald Trump settled Jill Harth's case back in the 1990s, three weeks after she filed it, so pretty quickly. Her allegations have never changed, that he grabbed her, that he groped her on a number of occasions. At one point at Mar-a-Lago, she says he took her into Ivanka's bedroom when Vanka was a little girl and pushed her up against the wall, put his hands up her skirt. I mean, it's a really horrifying story. And so Jill Hart spoke out about it throughout the campaign. 
With regard to the woman who alleges that she was a 13-year-old girl, she decided ultimately that she did not want to come forward. She had filed a lawsuit, but then she decided she just couldn't take the heat, frankly, and the lawsuit was withdrawn and dismissed, and she does not want to speak publicly about her allegations. The person who was 13 yeah. when she accused Donald Trump of rape. You know, Donald Trump said that he would sue the women who alleged he sexually assaulted them after the election. Right. Has he sued any of them? Well, we all knew that was a lie at the time, just like so many of the things that come out of his mouth. And, of course, he has not sued. And I said, bring it on. I represented four of the women. If you want to sue any of them, I mean, listen, nobody wants to get sued, especially by a man as powerful and wealthy as Donald Trump. But I said online that I would represent any of them. We would crowdfund defense costs. And I'm very happy to do it. I will stand by them, just like I told Wendy Walsh, I will stand by you if you come forward with your claims. I think it's important for women to have a strong woman stand with them when they do this kind of thing. It's very scary to do this on your own. So anybody who does have a sexual harassment claim against a powerful man, I encourage them to get a strong feminist attorney to stand by them. It's a completely different experience. My clients feel very empowered afterwards, after they walk through the fire. I think Wendy feels pretty good about what she's doing right now. This can be done. I think it has to be done if we're ever going to change the world for our daughters and move the ball forward. There's still too much sexual harassment, not just by famous men, but in the workplaces in general. And it's never going to change if we don't oppose it and speak out and bring lawsuits where that's necessary. Can President Trump be sued as president? Absolutely. We all remember the case of Paula Jones against Bill Clinton back in the 1990s, and the Supreme Court ruled unanimously that no one in America is above the law, and that includes the president. And there is a defamation case against Donald Trump brought by one of his accusers, Summer Zervos, because he called her a liar after she came out with her claims. Donald Trump is now saying that case, you know, shouldn't go forward. He has immunity. That's fake law. The case is going to go forward. And, you know, I wish Summer Zervos the best. Well, we're also joined by Arisha Hatch, Managing Director of Campaigns at Color of Change, which has just launched a major campaign calling on advertisers to boycott the O'Reilly Factor. Welcome to Democracy Now!, Arisha. Can you talk about this campaign, what you're calling for? We've actually been running this campaign for several years now, demanding that advertisers divest from Bill O'Reilly's show. Given the level of language, the level of hostility that we see him pursue on a daily basis, and obviously a number of claims that have come up from women and many others about the hostile work environment that they're enduring there at Fox. And what's been the response to the campaign so far? Have lots of advertisers pulled out? I think the count this morning is over 50, have pulled out thus far of about 100 current advertisers. And we're continuing to contact advertisers to make our case for why we don't feel like they should be enabling this type of behavior and these types of settlements. And currently, we're focused on a number of corporations that still haven't done the right thing. A third Fox News Channel employee has just joined two colleagues in their lawsuit that says they were subjected to racial discrimination by an executive who just just before they filed the lawsuit, was filed, fired in March. Can you talk about what happened and who these employees of Fox are? It's recently been reported, and we've been in contact with three black women who are making racial discrimination claims, not directly related to the O'Reilly show, but through other executives at Fox. They're describing tons of racial animus, racial epithets, and just a general pervasive hostility towards black people, black women especially, that they've encountered. And that's why I think this conversation around what O'Reilly has done and said in the past and the advertisers that support him really extends beyond the factor. But an advertiser just moves 
moving their money away from O'Reilly's show to another show on Fox News really doesn't get the job done because what we're seeing time and time again is a pervasive, persistent, hostile work environment for anybody that's considered an other or outside the norm. Well, on Wednesday, one of the plaintiffs, Tichuana Brown, told Good Morning America her employer's mockery of the Black Lives Matter movement was the tipping point. Walking down the hallway, if you encountered Judith Slater, she would put up her hands in this motion, mocking the Black Lives Matter movement, walking into the bathroom, even saying goodnight to her at night. And instead of saying goodnight back, it's hands up, don't shoot. Many of these women are describing several incidents very articulately and very well. But I think what she's describing is an existing racial animus and bias that is targeted and creates an unsustainable work environment for people that are just trying to do their jobs, just trying to feed their families. And while it's incredibly sad that these women have had to endure this, it's not surprising that this is happening behind the camera because we see so much of this sort of hostility and animus in front of the camera. Democracy Now! can be heard five days a week on WORT and anytime at all at democracynow.org. State's Department of Labor has accused Google of paying its female employees significantly less than it pays its male employees. According to Jeanette Whipper, a Department of Labor regional director, the compensation disparities are systematic and show up across the entire workforce. The evidence allegedly emerged when the Department of Labor filed a lawsuit against Google in January of this year. The department sought to compel Google to hand over its salary and job data, which it had repeatedly refused to do. This is actually a violation of Google's contractual obligations with the federal government. Google has objected to the Department of Labor's accusations, stating that it provides equal pay across genders and races. However, it still refuses to release all of its records to the Department of Labor as it's requested. Until this controversy has resolved, the Department of Labor has requested that the court cancel all of Google's federal contracts and block any future business with the government. This past Friday, the USA women's hockey team beat Canada 3-2 to clinch their eighth consecutive world championship. The exhilarating overtime victory marked a well-deserved end to a long and tumultuous year for the team. In addition to preparing for competition, the team has been engaged in a year-long battle for gender-equal pay against USA hockey. The battle came to a fore when, on March 15th, the team threatened to boycott the 2017 International Ice Hockey Federation Women's World Championship which is the premier tournament in women's ice hockey. The team unanimously agreed to not play unless they received better compensation and benefits comparable to what the men's team receives. This move received support from fans and other national athletic associations, including the National Football League and Major League Baseball. Even their counterparts in men's hockey said they would boycott their own world championships if pay equity was not reached. Finally, just days before the championships, lawyers for USA Hockey and the women's hockey team reached an agreement. The financial terms of the agreement remain private. However, the deal includes the formation of an advisory group of current and former players to, quote, assist USA Hockey in efforts to advance girls in women's hockey, end quote. 
A Missouri lawmaker suggested Wednesday on the Senate floor that the city of St. Louis be required to change the name of the zoo to, quote, the Midwest Abortion Sanctuary City Zoological Park, end quote, after topics of taxes and abortions were brought to the Senate floor. Senator Bob Onder went as far as drafting an amendment he later said he never intended on presenting. His anti-abortion views were made clear as he joked with fellow lawmakers that the zoos were more regulated than abortion clinics in the state. Missouri has only one facility authorized to perform procedures. The Senate representative from Missouri then went on to suggest that women seeking an abortion fall under equal restrictions under the law that requires zoo to seek alternatives to euthanizing, such as networking with other zoos for adoption first and a five-day waiting period versus the current three-day waiting period for women in the state. His remark continued to degrade women as he compared them to animals while furthering his comments to include comparisons to women's rights to abortions as genocide. Senate Majority Leader Jenda Walsh was appalled that her sponsored legislation for tax increases to support the conservation of animals would be wrapped up in such an unrelated issue. In a win for women in the Canadian workforce, a Canadian province has amended its workers' compensation law to prevent employers from forcing their female employees to wear high heels or set any other dress code requirements based on gender, gender expression, or gender identity. In support of this legislation, the Premier of British Columbia, Christy Clark, has stated that mandatory high heel dress codes are, quote, a workplace health and safety issue. There is a risk of physical injury from slipping or falling, as well as possible damage to the feet, legs, and back from prolonged wearing of high heels while at work, end quote. The British Columbian government will amend its workers' compensation law to, quote, ensure that workplace footwear is of design, construction, and material that allows the worker to safely perform their work, end quote. Experts of employment issues believe that pressures on women in the workforce to expend more time in financial resources on their appearances compared to males should be discussed more. In recent news from Egypt, hundreds of women and girls have begun to speak out against sexual harassment by sharing their personal experiences on social media and broaching this taboo subject, they have become the target of anger from Egypt's conservative majority. Egyptian women have taken to use Facebook and Twitter to share their stories, focusing particularly on the first time each storyteller became the victim of sexual harassment. All the stories occurred sometime in childhood and involved people of trust and power in these women's lives. The stories have shed light on the plight of Egyptian women and girls who face sexual harassment from men or groups of men in countless public forums or gatherings. Backlash against these women stems from Egyptian conservatives who accuse the women of sharing their stories of being crude. One has gone as far to say that the women are as much as at fault as their harassers. Critics have laid the blame on these women for their, the stories they share. Some believe they provoke their harassment by wearing revealing clothing or acting provocatively. Others tell them to protect their honor by keeping the stories to themselves. While Egyptian society tends to deny the existence of sexual assault or harassment, sex crimes are widespread. The existence of particularly highlighted in 2011 when mass rape and sexual assault occurred during the popular uprising that spawned many public protests. The problem still persists to this day. Just last Friday on April 1st, a video was posted online showing a woman being sexually harassed by dozens of men before police broke up the group and rescued her. 
All Thai men who turn 21 are required to serve in the military for six months. This draft requirement presents a unique challenge to Thai transgender women because they are not allowed to change their gender identity on their official documents. As a result, they are required to show up to the draft, which occurs every April. Transgender women can avoid serving in the military if they have physically altered their bodies and are deemed to have, quote, gender identity disorder, end quote. However, having to prove their gender identity can result in humiliating physical exams. The Thai Transgender Alliance for Human Rights reports that some transgender women contemplate suicide in order to avoid conscription. While Thailand is commonly thought of as an LGBTQ-friendly country, many report that different gender identities are still stigmatized. For example, the military used to consider being transgender as a, quote, permanent mental disorder, end quote. Other transgender women have been told to leave bathrooms and hotels because of their gender identity. Four female chief justices now head the four major high courts of India with the latest appointment, showing a growing feminist trend in the country. Indira Banjari will be serving as chief justice in the Madras High Court and will be one of only six female judges working alongside 53 male ones. The other three high courts also reveal a much higher number of male-to-female judges, but it is still an improvement from years before. The Delhi High Court male judges outnumber the female judges 35 to 9. The Calcutta High Court has a worse ratio, 35 male judges working with only four female ones. Bombay's High Court has 61 male judges working with only 11 female ones. While the appointment of more female justices may be a promising sign that the country's climate is becoming more inclusive of women, there is still a wide gap before both genders have an equal voice. Only 10% of India's high court judges are women, and only one woman serves on a Supreme Court. <laughs>